Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Mountains, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Recently, I hosted a webinar in which I talked with three superintendents about the challenges of reopening schools. As students around the country head back to their classrooms or their kitchen tables, I thought listeners might enjoy hearing about how districts arrived at their back-to-school plans and about superintendents' perspectives on reopening. So without further ado, please enjoy our conversation from Thursday, August 13th. Welcome everyone to this webinar. My name is Nat Malkus. I'm the Deputy Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And we're glad to have you joining us for this webinar on a recently released paper, Authority and Responsibility, District Leader Responses to Reopening Plan. We have completed this paper and released it based on interviews with a dozen district leaders from across the nation who are in the midst of reopening schools in what's got to be the most challenging school reopening in the past 100 years, at least. Let's cap it at that. We're going to discuss that with three of those superintendents who've been kind enough to join us. We're going to discuss the, the paper findings for about a half an hour. Then we're going to have, uh, you know, about 10 minutes available for you, the audience, to participate with our panel with some Q&A. So just to open, why this paper and why now? Well, part of it is there's really no shortage of strong opinions about reopening schools this fall. You have the president weighing in, saying that reopening is essential, and the secretary of education saying that all schools need to reopen and be fully operational. On the other hand, you have the American Federation of Teachers, who's driving pretty hard to the hoop, talking about their willingness to strike to keep schools remote in some cases. Meanwhile, the op-ed pages of the daily papers are, are daily giving us a dose of opinion on whether and how schools should reopen. And while everybody's entitled to their opinion on this topic, one of the voices that gets lost too often in this din is that of school superintendents. And that's a problem for this public conversation on reopening because superintendents have both the authority and the responsibility to reopen schools. And that includes all the details and liabilities that go with it. And that's a long chain of details that they have to wind down, liabilities and uh, effects on teachers, families, and students. So I wanted to use this opportunity to talk to superintendents and highlight their voice and their understanding to uh, elaborate um, these, these decision-making processes in this tough season. We interviewed 12 education leaders in the last two weeks of July. I, I'd like to just say that that was just about, you know, between uh, three or four weeks ago, seems like a, a lifetime at this pace. And so it, we're actually in a little bit of a different space now than we were. Five of those were school district superintendents. One was a state superintendent, four diocesan superintendents and two charter school leaders who oversaw charter school networks that span regions and several states. Uh, together, these leaders oversee over half a million students and 900 schools. In talking with each, we asked about a number of factors that dealt with three prominent reopening plans. And these aren't, aren't unfamiliar to you. Going back in person with pandemic preparedness, going fully remote, uh, again, with a, hopefully a stronger remote learning platform than we saw in the spring, or some hybrid version of the two. 
And we asked in, within each of those, what were the deal breakers for you on the ones that you did not pursue? And what are the trade-offs that you had to make in those decisions? Now, typically on one of these things, when I write a paper, I spend the first 20 minutes of a presentation uh, explaining what I found and then going to a panel. But the whole purpose of this paper is to highlight the voice of superintendents. And we have three that I'm very grateful that they joined me. So I'm going to ask them to speak up early and often as I sort of hit some of the high points that we found. So let me welcome those three. Dr. Jason Glass is the superintendent of Jeffco Public Schools in Colorado, serving about 85,000 students. They're planning to begin on uh, August 24th remote. And then on September 8th, their pre-K through five students will be going back in person and their older students will be going back with a hybrid model. Dr. Monica Goldson is the CEO of neighboring Prince George's County Public Schools and also where I taught when I was a teacher uh, low many years ago, go PGCPS. PGCPS is home to nearly 130,000 students or over and they'll plan to start the last day of August with a full distance learning plan for the first two quarters of the year. Finally, Dr. Matt Variki is the superintendent of Catholic schools in the Diocese of Dallas, serving about 15,000 students and continuing with plans to reopen in person this fall, at least as of July 21st. These are fast changing plans. So please feel free, any of you to correct me if there's been changes since then. So obviously superintendent's first priority in all this was to keep students safe. When we talked to everyone, to a person, they said, uh, the first thing we have to do is, is keep our students and our staff safe. John Deasy, who's now retired, but just very recently retired from Stockton School District, told me, you know, we absolutely cannot bring students back until we guarantee their health and safety. And that's a pretty strong statement. But all of the superintendents we talked to had a bunch of other concerns. Let's just think about these. Parents have needs to have their children looked after. Student safety outside of COVID is not always better out of school than in school. The educational needs of students are obviously paramount, and the remote learning option is a tough one to pull off well. There's also questions of organizations as far as losing students or losing revenue. So we did not find one through thread about how district superintendents were balancing on the one hand, safety concerns about the pandemic, and on the other hand, major concerns about other items. So I want to ask now, and Dr. Glass, I think I'll, I'll kick it off to you with just this question. In your district, how did you approach balancing, you know, vital health and safety needs during the pandemic without giving these other responsibilities short shrift? Well, I think that word balance is the operative word, at least it was in this community. We have to consider what the, is the be, in the best health interest of our students, our staff, and our larger community. We don't want the school to become a vector by which the virus spreads in the community. With that, we have to balance the academic developmental needs of our students, the social emotional concerns that we saw pop up this past spring with an all remote environment now several months without structured interaction in person, in person learning, and the economic impact in our community. How I think we had to consider and how we are considering how to balance is trying to find where is that balance in our community. I think it is contextual to the community that you serve. Just here in the Denver metro area, the districts that are 
north of us that tend to be more left of center and the large Denver public schools that also tends to be left of center politically have chosen the all remote option. The districts south of us have tended to choose the in-person option and they are more conservative uh, in their in the authorizing environment or the electorate. My community here in Jeffco is, is a beautiful shade of purple. Uh, we have about a third independents, a third Democrats, and a third Republicans, and an abundance of opinions on what we should do, most of which are being shared on Twitter and Facebook all the time. But uh, for us, it's been trying to balance, trying to find out what's the right balance in our community. Dr. Goldson, I'm curious how you struck that balance in Prince George's County. Yeah, it was interesting to hear Dr. Glass's perspective because politics, honest and truly, did not weigh in my decision making. For- My county happens to be the epicenter of COVID-19 in the state of Maryland. And so for me, that balance was honest and truly around how I could provide the best educational experience while balancing their health and safety. And um, so I had to make a decision that would keep them safe, but still convince my community that distance learning is still going to help to get them where they need to be until I can move them back into school. But it also helped a little bit that I am a blue state. But I have to admit, I did not, you know, this was one that I had to make a decision for kids and didn't really care what people's political stances were. Dr. Vareki, you work in a different environment. You're in Fort Worth, but also running a a diocese of schools. Um, How did you approach this balance? Well, we started off and really kind of looked at what is the virus doing and how is it ultimately impacting the communities that we're serving? We, we have nine different counties that we actually have schools into, but the simple answer is we took the sin eater approach and really said, we're going to have one to two people on our staff whose whole life, you know, for the next several months is COVID. And by kind of pushing that off and having a COVID response team, it's allowed everybody else who really needs to do the day-to-day aspects, curriculum, the approach to parents, the recruiting, the retention aspects, to be free to do so without having to worry about all of these other things that are coming on, because it's all encompassing. And if you're not careful, your whole life just becomes reading the Facebook comments, the Twitter posts, and all of the articles that are out there. And um, all of that's just depressing. Yes, and I'm not quite sure that's where the truth lies. So uh, it it may be good to look elsewhere. Let me ask you about some specifics. One of the things that we found repeatedly was this varied from place to place, but we saw a lot of frustration among superintendents with the help that they were getting from public health authorities. And and let me lay this out a little bit. Um, You know, superintendents generally aren't considered to be public health experts. But in this pandemic, you almost have to become a public health expert and you need to lean on public health authorities to give you the information and expertise to make a really important public health decision. Some of the things that we found across the board were that the local help that people were getting had been better than the the help from higher levels of government. One superintendent said that the insanity of the help coming from the federal level was was not helpful at all. Another one said the local guidance has been excellent all the way through from public health officials. From the state, it has been miserable. And you can quote me on that. So I will quote him. That was Jack Smith from Montgomery County. So Monica, maybe you can talk about your view of, of your state's help. And you know, the, the thought 
that the local guidance was better was uh, certainly marked from the state help, but also we heard from a lot of superintendents that there were missing pieces to the help that they were getting. Let me share with you a couple of quotes and then I'll ask you about it. One superintendent said, my superintendent colleagues and I are really, really frustrated because everything's being punted to us. We aren't seeing state officials come out with definitive information. And instead it's falling to us to have conversations and to convince the community that what we're, and I'm filling in here, that, that what they were doing was actually safe. I had another superintendent say, the Department of Health should lay this out for us. It should be consistent everywhere. I'm trying to figure out how to educate and feed and transport our kids. And I want medical experts to tell me what to do when I have outbreaks in the school. I don't think I'm qualified to make that decision. So this is a superintendent who's worried about what to do when they have an outbreak. And then I had several other superintendents say, we're not actually getting public health experts telling us not just how to respond to an outbreak, but how to plan to prevent them. Uh, I'll quote one more person. The public health department has been working really close with us on contact tracing. And we're really getting zero guidance in the area of reopening schools. <laughs> They're willing to help us in scenarios, willing to document cases. But when it comes to reopening schools, there's a deaf silence out there. There's nothing coming. Government officials are pushing reopening of schools, but the Department of Health is silent. And we don't really hear a lot in regards to safety and what kind of protocols we should have. Now, not everybody had these deficits, but a lot of superintendents felt like they had a lot of ground to make up on the public health front. So uh, Monica, if I can start with you, yeah. uh, Dr. Goldson, how did, how did you feel about the support you got in Prince George's County in making these public health decisions? So the support I got locally was fine. And though still there's a balance between the recommendations I received from a public health officer who doesn't fully understand public education, other than him being a former student. Um, and, and I have learned that because you've been a former student, now that makes everyone an expert. But then I, you know, on the other hand, also I'm going to him because I don't have that health expertise and I need him for that. Um, I can co-sign what my colleague from Montgomery County said. We had very, we had no direction from the state. So consistency is a word that I would have appreciated having from the federal, state, and then local. But since I did not, I had to rely on my local. Um, and we converse every week. But I also have a health officer who is very much on the extreme spectrum of no one should ever leave the home until we get this resolved. And, and I mean, clearly we all have to leave to go to, to get our necessities, which are groceries and medicine. But honestly, if, but once again, we are the epicenter in the state of Maryland. And we should have been receiving a lot more guidance than what we received from the state. Dr. Glass? Well, um, we don't have any of our public health officials here to defend themselves, so I feel badly uh, speaking ill of them. I will say that um, my observation was, in some defense of them, that there was a lack of consensus among superintendents on what they should do. Uh, some, uh, some superintendents were calling for state, local officials, officials, or governors to come out early and declare what was going to happen or what we were going to do to make it a, an order for those places that had the authority to do so. Other superintendents were resisting that and saying that uh, we need the state and we need the governor, we need uh, state public health to stay out of our business and let us do this work. And so I think there was a cacophony of different 
perspectives coming from superintendents on what state and local public health should do. I also think that both that our public health directors at both the state and local level were struggling to figure this out at the same time that we were, and the ground kept shifting underneath them. We kept seeing differences in uh, virus incidents or accounts in our communities. They went down, they came back up. Uh, in our community, they're going back down again. And so those are real-time uh, data uh, elements that they're uh, working to pay attention to. Uh, we saw uh, new research come out at first earlier in the summer. Uh, we, we thought that the number of cases and the spread of the virus and, and how the virus impact uh, students was far lower than uh, how it impacted adults. Uh, now uh, we have research now that tells us that students get infected and spread it just like everybody else, but the, uh, the impacts or the symptoms on them are far less severe. And so that's, that's emerged just within the past few weeks as well. And I also think that the, some of the guidance that we did get was put together by public health experts, which would be akin to me trying to put together as an educator, medical advice. I've been sick, I've been in the hospital, but as uh, Dr. Goldson says, that doesn't qualify me to make medical or public health determinations or judgments. So sometimes some of the guidance that we got, um, directives around how and when to close schools or when to quarantine or procedures to put in place that just weren't operable. Or they just weren't realistic to implement. So there was a push and pull and a balance between, I think, education leaders and people that, that had worked in school buildings and our public health officials to try and find uh, how we put in place virus mitigation techniques to open schools safe, but also uh, work, to, work to get them open. And I, I honestly think we're still in that process, trying to figure out how do we do this and learning as, as we go. I think that's a fair point. You bring up the uncertainty that the public health officials face throughout this process. Of course, district superintendents remarked about the same uncertainty. They had variables shifting underneath their feet. One of them told me, this uncertainty has been tremendous and the assumptions about reopening change frequently, sometimes daily. Dr. Variki, I'm, I'm interested in how that uncertainty played out in planning for your schools in Dallas. Yeah, and I'll tell you, Texas was, a, uh, was almost a complete disaster in terms of having any kind of coordination between state and local agencies, because we have been in the middle of, of a political fight for the last month in between the governor saying the state health department doesn't have any right to tell any school what to do, that local county health departments have no right to close schools unless there's a case, and um, having local judges and local counties make that kind of patchwork decision. So as I mentioned, I mean, we're in nine counties. We've got nine different orders that we're contending with that then the governor invalidated. So, you know, part of the issue that comes into place with this is that if there's no cooperation and the health guidance becomes based on what's politically feasible to get past the governor, you're no longer having a discussion about public health. You're having a discussion about, you know, really what's the opinion of the community. And that's been the most concerning thing to me because our local health guidance, our local health department has been very clear about all reopening aspects since day one. They've been saying privately exactly what we need to do in order to have our schools open. They won't say it publicly because they're worried about what they might get from the governor or the pushback that they might have from local politics. And also because they're beginning to get concerned that our largest school districts won't be able to handle that type of restriction. And so then they'd be in a position where they're publicly at odds with the superintendents. They don't want to throw us under the bus. And so they're trying to find this middle ground, which appears to me to really be, if we can just get the case counts down to close to zero, then we'll send everybody back and you know we'll just hope we get lucky.
And I'm very concerned kind of about that type of approach, especially when we're now getting to the point where the science has become definitive on this, but we just don't have an authority who apparently has the authority to make these calls at either a state or local level, at least in Texas. Well, I, I got to tell you, I have a dozen questions to back that one up, but I want to move on to some of our other topics that we touched on that are just as vital. You talk about the uncertainty and how difficult it must be to communicate confidently to your stakeholders during this and two stakeholders that you got to bring back. Well, you got to bring back your teachers and you got to bring back your families. So let's talk about those two stakeholder groups. We talked to a, a, a lot of superintendents and there were a lot of teacher groups that were very afraid. They were saying uh, really sort of histrionic things, but a lot of them were very concerned. And I think uh, Dr. Bariki, that it was you who said a lot of teachers feel like they're being sacrificed on or, or placed on the altar of convenience. And there are those, those challenges. In other places, teachers were willing to come back. And then there's a whole nother section of families and their interests. And we heard a more favorable approach generally from families to coming back in person, but there were some really difficult splits in those opinions. These splits could come where more well-off families wanted to keep their students remote and more working class families were more likely to want to return their students to school. Parents of younger students were more interested in returning. And, you know, some of these things make sense. Essential workers were more interested in returning and so forth. They have different needs. So you have these, both teachers and families, with a lot of conflicting and valid concerns. So I, I'll, I'll just throw this up to any. How hard was it to balance the concerns of these groups when at the end of the day, you have to make some definitive call about how you're going to go back to school? Dr. Glass, can I kick it to you? Sure. I think it goes back to that element of, of balance. And I don't think it's the, the question isn't how hard it was. It's how hard it is. Uh, <laughs> it's still ongoing for sure. I think our staff members have understandable concerns about their own health. They want to make sure that we have a series of mitigation strategies in place that's going to protect them and protect their own families and protect their students. So I, I think it's appropriate that our teachers and staff are uh, stepping up and demanding uh, to know how is this going to work. Uh, they have pushed us on some really micro level details, going to some deep hypothetical questions that we've tried to keep up with and provide answers to. And I also think that our, our parents are concerned about the development of their kids. They're worried about their economic livelihood. And I don't, I don't want to diminish that and say that it's, it's, uh, it, it's a real concern for a lot of working families. How are they going to keep their home? How are they going to put food on the table? So these are, these are real interests that we're trying to balance. And in our community, it has been that work of trying to find the balance. How can we find a way that balances the interests of all of our stakeholders? So far, I think we've managed to find a solution that makes everybody mad. Uh, so we, we may be getting to the, the right spot. I, I hear you. Dr. Goldson, yes. I'm, I'm curious how you, how you balance the push and pull among your stakeholder groups. I think if superintendents thought we could get 100% buy-in all the time, we would have taken this job a long time ago, but we can't. <laughs> um, and so we don't expect to have it. What, you know, we realize though that we have to make the best decision for our community. And even the decision I've made, I hear from a subset of parents from every group that you've shared. And I empathize with all of those groups and we're doing our best to find a way to still meet their needs in virtual learning, doing small group instruction for our English language learners 
and our special education students. Um, for my district, I have 60% of my family who are on free and reduced meals. And when we did a survey before school concluded on percentage of parents, um, what model they wanted, 46% of our parents said, I want distance learning. Then there were 42% that said hybrid. By the time I made my decision July 15th, and I had a telephone town hall with 37,000 people, I had over 90% in agreement with the decision. So it, it kind of just goes to the point that Dr. Glass said, it changes every day. One day you think, hey, I can go back hybrid. When I sent that survey out in June, I honestly and truly believed I could try to pull off hybrid. And then I realized it's impossible for me to do. And, and for me to do and keep my children safe. And so it just, it changes. And so that balance, you know, we will, we've modified our reopening plan three times with community input each week. And we're just trying to show our community that we're going to be as flexible and try to balance this as best we can. You know, I want to ask about one thing uh, quickly because it played a lot, especially for the, the charter leaders that we talked to and the Catholic school leaders that we talked to. And that was just sort of the, the satisfaction of parents and what that means for tuition-dependent schools and schools of choice. And this played out in a couple of ways, and I'll ask you, Dr. Marie, to comment on it. One is just obvious, and one of the Catholic school leaders told me, I think our biggest struggle is the fact that if I don't open face-to-face -face five days a week, people aren't going to pay to come to a Catholic school. Okay, that, that makes sense to me. There's some more su surprising ways that this happened, too, where when public districts said, well, we need to go remote, there were private schools that also felt like, well, if they have to go remote, can I actually do something different? So they felt strong-armed by uh, district school boards and decisions. And then finally, in some of the districts we talked to that had, uh, they were public districts, but they had more of a choice uh, rich area. Well, they felt the pressure to not say, well, we're going to go remote because they were afraid that they might lose market share or they might lose students to private schools that might be maybe smaller or more nimble and, and, and might go reopening. So first, Dr. Variki, how did you all in Dallas feel those competitive effects and, and wrestle with them in this reopening decision? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a really valid question. And, and the biggest thing that we began to look at is to say, we have to find a way to push those economic concerns off the decision-making tree. Because the bottom line is if teachers thought for a second that a primary motive for us doing this was just to get tuition dollars, then we were sunk. I mean, we had to really start with what could be done safely, what could ultimately be done in, in the way of understanding the virus. But I see this happening. In, in the sense of even the public school districts that we're dealing with are facing the exact same issue because it's a county by county decision. So you might be in Dallas County, but literally one mile over the border is the second largest school district right near you. And if they decide that they're going to go in person, you now have the issue of do people change their address? Do they move? You know, what kind of societal effects does that, that have in place? And, and so again, for me, when I was looking at it from our schools, the first thing I had to do was just say, it just can't be an economic decision. I mean, too often, all of these teachers are facing the exact same thing in the news, which is you are expendable and you are a cog in a system. And if we just reinforce that and said, yep, you know, rich parents get to do what they want and you're going to be sacrificed at that altar of convenience, you know, that that would have really kind of shut us down pretty quickly. So we shifted that conversation a little bit over to the safety aspect. And, and I found that's been helpful for us. Dr. Glass, can you talk about the, the way competitive forces worked out in Jeffco? 
Sure. Well, I think um, Dr. Vicky is absolutely right that we we start from the place of you know, can we do this safely? That that has to be uh, our foremost foremost concern. Um, but I also think we have to acknowledge that in the giant econometric equation that all of us are trying to do to figure out the calculus of this, the economics of it are are in that mix. And how is this going to impact me? If I make this decision, I wouldn't say it was the driving force here, but it was. It has been and continues to be something that uh, we, we're monitoring. Uh, our school district is uh, surrounded by districts to the north uh, that are choosing all remote, and districts uh, the uh, Denver Public Schools that is adjacent to us is all remote, and the districts to the south are offering uh, either very similar plans or more in-person options than we are. Uh, we also have private schools in our community, and we have charter schools, and there's a variety of different approaches that are that are being deployed. And I think we we have created a robust school choice market in the Colorado in Colorado and then the Denver metro area, and it is behaving like a market. Uh, so parents are looking at their options and they are choosing what's best for them. Uh, and and I, I honestly, I don't think we know yet what the economic impact or the financial impact on schools is going to be. I'm expecting some loss in enrollment from uh, parents that are choosing to homeschool. They're going to um, charter schools who may be offering more in-person uh, classes than I am. Um, uh, they, uh, they may be uh, choosing private schools, but honestly, I've got also districts that I'm hearing of parents who may be coming to, into our district because their district is not offering that in-person experience at all. So I, I don't think we know yet exactly how this is gonna shake out. I agree with what um, Dr. Vriki said. It is not the driving force, but it's in it's in the calculus. And at this point, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Yeah. So I, I'm getting a lot of questions. They're queuing up, and folks are, are knocking at the door. So I'm going to limit myself to one last one, but I really do want to get to it. Most superintendents that I talk to came at the end with some form of I'm in a situation where I have no real good options, right? Some that said, you know, that were interested in going in person just saw the remote only option is totally infeasible. I had one that said, it's the absolute worst scenario. You don't have relationships with kids and teachers don't get to know their kids. If we don't provide in-person touch points for our older students, we're going to lose them in droves. Other people saw it the opposite way. If you're using safety as your guide, we use safety and equity, then it's the best option you have and it trumps all the others. Now, there's a lot of views in between there, but most people thought I'm choosing one, but I'm giving up major things on the other. I, I talked to superintendents who described an infinite series of trade-offs they have to make and, and describe this situation as trying to find the best worst option that we can. So that's pretty pessimistic. I mean, I just, you know, I'll just be out there. This is a tough thing. And, you know, I understand that Education Week wrote about our, our piece and they said, this is the worst job in education right now, being a superintendent. But I'm asking about that picking your poison. Dr. Vriki, I'll, uh, I'll start with you. Just describe to me how you make this decision and, and how you proceed with it when there's sort of downsides, no matter which way you go. Yeah, I think the first and primary thing that I began to look at is the bottom line is if we don't have people who are able to work and to connect with their kids and be educated, then they're not going to have homes to shelter in. And it'd be one thing if we knew this is three months or six months or nine months, but there is no end date in sight. We know it's longer than a year. We know it's longer than the vaccine. We know that it's going to take time in order to get there. 
and we all have to survive between now and then. And so the key aspect was how can we do that as quickly and as safely as possible? The problem though, is that the ideal solution just cannot exist. The ideal solution is everybody stays home. You all get paid. Nobody has to worry about losing their job. Food just shows up and it's magical and no one has to be there. Well, you know, that's not the world we live in. And so we've really begun to look at this to say, how can we best serve our families, our parents and our kids within the context of knowing the virus is not going away anytime soon. Dr. Goldson? Yeah, we looked at it under three pillars, safety, equity, and then excellence in teaching. And I agree with Dr. Variki, if you don't have teachers who are gonna teach, I mean, we looked at our population of teachers and I have 27% of my teachers who fell in the high risk category. So we already knew going in that we might not even have enough teachers because many of them could very well apply for the CARES Act leave. So we had to make a decision under those three pillars and we've had to move forward with a very robust delivery through the use of technology. We're becoming one-to-one. I have gotten $2 million from our Board of Education to close the digital divide. I am paying people's Wi-Fi bill. We have purchased hotspots. So we're also making other gives and takes to get to what we believe is the safest in those three pillars. Dr. Glass? Yeah, well, I I think that we don't have a lot of good options. I think that's accurate. Every one of the choices before us has a significant downside. And so all of us uh, with what comes with really difficult choices, you have to make the decision and then live with the consequences of your choice. I also don't think that at this moment, anyone can say any of these are right or wrong. We just don't know. We, We have seen other international systems be successful at reopening. None of them have the virus, the community spread that we have. Dr. Fauci you know, called it an, an experiment. That's an unfortunate choice of words, but in some ways he's right. We, we're gonna, there are some things being tried across the country. I think all of us are gonna have to look and see in those, those places that are trying to get open, are they, being, are they being effective at mitigating the virus or not? Six months from now, three months from now, it, it may come to pass that we can look back on, on the decisions that were made now and there was a clear right choice. We had massive outbreaks in those places that tried in-person learning. Clearly, it would have been better to be remote. Or we saw uh, schools open up and students could come back safely. We didn't see massive outbreaks in, in those communities. Then it would have been the right choice for us to, to move toward a more in-person experience. What's more likely is that you'll end up with some murky middle in this. That communities will will make their choice and there will be trade-offs associated with with that choice that the community will have to uh, endure. And there are benefits associated with that choice the community will will benefit from. So I want to go to some Q&A. First question, you've probably heard this before, but one of the most popular things for journalists writing about education to write about are learning pods. They love to talk about these, you know, these small little learning pods are going to revolutionize everything. The question is, you read in the news about the rise of parents choosing learning pods or micro schools. Does that really, has that affected your decisions or come into play in a major way? It, it didn't affect my decision, but we do have communities and parents who are going to implement learning pods, but it's not one that we are facilitating. Um, our PTSAs are helping them to do that. But what we have found is that it's offered typically in certain geographic areas within our district. And not every parent has that option to have kids come together in one area. Um, And so for those who can pull it off, great. But there are lots of people who are not in that situation and that could support a parent pod experience. 
it's something that we are talking about um, right now. There's some interest in our community. I think as with Dr. Goldson's community, we, it's happening. Uh, you have some parents that are organizing this. It, it does raise significant equity concerns of families that are able to do this and some that aren't. We're starting to see some community philanthropy, faith-based organizations step up and, and look at providing some support in that. But the equity is a concern with that. The safety of those pods is a concern. We haven't really mitigated the virus if we all shift to remote learning and then we recreate unsafe places where uh, the virus can spread within learning pods out in community. So I think as these come into, into play, we've got to focus on how we can do it equitably, uh, how we can make sure that we've got virus mitigation strategies that are in, in place in those, in those pods, and then figure out how, how we do this at scale. The school district staff is overwhelmed trying to open schools, so I don't have the capacity to create an entire new team who's going to develop this and stand it up in the community. So we're trying to find some ways to support it, make it equitable, make it safe, uh, but it, it's also an experiment right now. Well, it's interesting that both of your responses are a little bit different from a lot of things that are, are characterized in the media, as in this is the sort of competition to schools, whereas you're sort of looking at as ways to, to support them. I have another question. Do you think this will have lasting effects on how we do schooling? Or do you think education will revert back to traditional ways as soon as possible? Or I, I assume as soon as the, the virus has sort of receded, or hopefully we, we get there sooner than later. Dr. Variki, any thoughts on lasting effects? Yeah, I do think that it is going to have a lasting change on the approach to the classroom, on the approach to curriculum, our understanding of when kids should be in school or not in school. I mean, at least from a private school perspective, one of the things we've seen is that we can do remote learning for at least short periods of time. If this does nothing else but otherwise eliminate snow days, you know, that would be something which I think would come of this. I do think there is going to be also a push back to the mean because a lot of the things that we're being asked to do right now are harder. And we've also seen that, especially for the younger students, say, you know, under first grade, remote learning is just not ideal. And so I think there has been this thought all along that remote learning was the way of the future. It was where we we're always going to go. We're seeing over and over again how important that human connection is, especially for young students. And, and so I think that will also drive change, but kind of back from the whole idea of just progress for progress sake. I definitely think it's going to change. For us, um, as much as we hear about students not embracing distance learning, I have 40,000 6th through 12th grade students on distance learning from July 1 through July 31st. And of those 40,000, um, they were 34,000 were middle school students. A thousand of them were high school students who were taking classes for the first time. And so what I think it's gonna happen, and I've shared this with our principals and I will be sharing with our teachers next week, is that we're gonna to have to transform how we deliver instruction. And I think our parents are gonna want options, just like we're gonna provide options if it's safe to do so for second semester. There are some kids who have thrived in the distance learning community. And those are introverts who are like, look, this is what I needed. I could really focus. And there are others who really missed being with their students. And so we've got to create an innovative strategy that will allow the distance learning piece, social emotional needs, meets the athletic, hey, a whole new form of education. But I do think it's going to change how we look at public education. I agree with uh, both of my colleagues. I, th I think we learned some of the capacity 
where technology can really be a catalyst for learning uh, clearly over this past spring. And I think that's going to come forward again. There are things that we can do with these devices that we, that um, the necessity is, is, is driving the innovation. And so that's exciting. We also saw in a very stark light, the limitations of these devices, how they don't replace in-person learning. I think looking ahead, we are going to see as a result of this experience, greater use of technology in education going forward. We're going to see greater use of asynchronous learning approaches. Uh, Matt talked about how this may be the end of snow days. Don't tell the students they will there'll be a riot or something. Um, but we may see um, greater use of asynchronous uh, learning techniques and problem and project-based learning techniques as a result of this experience. And I think we're going to see a greater and renewed in interest in competency-based approaches and, and student-centered approaches. Those are going to be some, some benefits that emerge from, from this experience. So I have another question here that I hope we can deal with quickly. Uh, in the absence of a deal from Congress that offers dedicated funding for PPE supplies to states and school districts, we have a lot of fiscal constraints. And this question is just how are districts budgeting for these needs and are they able to purchase these things now anyway? So I, I think Dr. Goldson and Dr. Glass, that sort of falls more to you directly, but yeah, we're grateful to receive funds from the CARES Act. And from those funds, that's helping us to purchase the additional 50,000 laptops that we needed to close our um, gap for becoming one-to-one. -one. We use some of those funds to help with PPE for purchases, and then we've used state grants as well. So there have been some places where we've received additional funding. But, but when we first started this pandemic, I had to go to our Board of Education and repurpose $2 million in our operating budget to to allow me to purchase hotspots in order to get our students up just for the spring. So we're grateful for that money, but once that CARES Act money concludes, which will be September of 2021, then I've got to find ways to continue to make sure if we decide to move to not having snow days, which parents have already asked about, I'm sure their kids don't know, um, we'd have to make sure that those families who don't have Wi-Fi have it so that we can do that. I completely agree. Just real quickly on the on the previous question about, you know, will we slide back to traditional school? I think there are some things about quote unquote traditional school that we value, that we want back. I mean, the school is a place of communities, a community and the community children come together. And it's it's a hub, it's the heart of the community. And, and that's what we're missing. And the support that the school provides uh, the community that we we've we've noticed how important schools are from their absence. And so there are some things that we want to get back to when it comes to that traditional experience. But on the on this PPE question, we're also grateful to have the had the support of the federal funds to help offset uh, some of the expenses that we had this past spring, and we'll have this this coming fall with devices and uh, all the um, I don't we got a whole warehouse full of masks and hand sanitation gel and and cleaning supplies and all this stuff that we've we've used uh, th that support to purchase that we have run into problems with shortages uh, order cancellations price gouging i mean all of those kinds of things i saw this uh, people sent me this video of kids coming in to chinese schools and they had all this equipment right. um, you get scanned when you come in all the kids have multiple masks they all have these shields around them all that stuff, a lot of this stuff's made in China. Uh, so they're able to, I mean, they have an industrial hub, so they're able to create this really quickly. I think it's been another struggle that we've had in the United States and not having a coordinated response to this as a country. We've struggled to get the protective equipment. We've struggled to get all of the, the medical equipment that we have needed. And we've struggled with adequate testing turnaround times. 
some places are getting this done in 30 minutes, which is tremendous. In my community, it's still taking four or five days. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, testing, COVID testing is simply not useful when you have that much of a lag. We need to do something about that. Yeah, we're in the same situation, Dr. Glass. Well, I appreciate your time and I, I would love to talk more, but we scheduled this and we've already run two minutes over. Dr. Glass, Dr. Golson, Dr. Bariki, thank you for spending your time. The paper again is Authority and Responsibility and it's released at AEI.org. I appreciate all your time and I wish you the, the best of luck and a successful school year, even though it's tough sledding. I uh, wish you the best. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks Thank to you. my colleagues. Have a great one. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to the superintendents who participated in this webinar, Jason Glass, Monica Goldson, and Matthew Variki. Thanks also to our producers. They make this podcast possible, and that includes Matt Rice and Tyler Hoop. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, take a moment and leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. As always, you can send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.